there is a chemical change going on. And that is when, you know, we are maybe more vulnerable to like maybe being traumatized or making poor decisions or anxiety, you know, and if we have um, our, our adults and our plants supporting as we bring these youth into adulthood, then, you know, maybe we won't have as much dysfunction. Welcome to Oregon Rooted. I'm Higher Peaks. And this is Lady Sativa. You're listening to The Dirt Show. Where we bring you Oregon's cannabis culture. I'm here with James and Rachel from Adelic, a five-year-old nonprofit advocating for people in psychoactive plants and fungi, starting at the local level for safe, sustainable access and local abundance. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Really glad you're here. Now, you guys came down from what, Eugene? Uh, yes, we did this morning. So we really appreciate that. Now, let's get to know Adelic. Okay. Well, we basically started the organization back in 2014. And it wasn't formalized at that point, but it was a really simple idea. And we didn't actually intend to start a nonprofit in the first place. There was basically two or three people in Eugene, and we all had this collectively shared problem in that we had a lot of literature and psychedelic books that we'd just been collecting over the years. And when we looked at all together, we're like, this is a pretty formidable collection of information. And it's really just sitting on our bookshelves collecting dust at this point. Most of us had read through it. We got a feel for it. And we had incorporated a lot of those ideas into our life already. So we thought, well, let's do the cool charitable thing. Like, let's get it all together, catalog it, and then give it to a public library like Eugene Public Library or the University Library. So we spent a couple of weeks. We got it all organized. And then we started going out and doing the outreach. And at the time, it was like 2014. It was before Michael Pollan came out, before this big wave of like, you know, people weren't talking openly about psychedelics sure. at that phase in time as they are today. So we got, we thought we were going to get warm reception, but actually people, you know, the libraries were like, well, no, thank you. It's cool, <laughs> but not so much. Yeah. One of the group's uh, libraries said, well, we'll take it but we're not gonna keep it like as a collection. We're gonna disperse it through the interlibrary loan system. And you know, so we'll have parts of it here and then other parts will be over there. And for us, we were thinking- Sounds like they're watering it down a yeah, little bit. Yeah, and we said, well, the point of it is a psychoactive library for yeah. the community yeah. that folks can have access to this. So that ended up, we said, well, let's just do it ourselves then. A group of three of us started it and we said, let's just, put up a website, let's get the book titles out there. And we started as a bicycle book loan delivery service. We had a website, phone number, people would call us up, wow. hey, I saw that you got this you know, little website up here with all these books. And it was just real chill and casual. You know, We'd get together, get coffee, people would say, can, you, can I check out this book or this book? And then we would go and meet, and we would talk, and we would share ideas. And 
when they returned the books, we'd have follow-up conversations. And so it just emerged like that for the first year. We were just meeting people, hanging out, having fun. Um, and at a certain point, somebody arrived and said, hey, we really like what you're doing. Uh, are you interested in like launching a plant conservatory around this? And so that led to having a spot where we could start cultivating some of the plants that we were educating the community about so thoroughly. And to me, that was one of the most interesting phases of it. Because I bet. it was, everybody was learning at their own pace what they wanted to learn, how deep they wanted to learn about it. Uh, and they were going in all different directions. People were studying anthropology. People were studying psychedelic science. People were studying, uh, you know, the biography and the figureheads in the movements throughout the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. People were studying what are the modern manifestations, festival culture. They were looking at different indigenous traditions. So it was just this community buzz that just grew and grew around the books themselves. And as word spread, People said, well, if we're reading and educating ourselves so much about it and we're getting the ins and outs, like, why don't we start cultivating them? That wasn't even on our map to begin with. We were just wanting to get the books out there. So at that point, we decided to incorporate as a nonprofit so that we could have uh, the ability to have a board of directors and kind of come around this idea formally. Like, well, if we're going to take responsibility for this information, this knowledge in this library collection, and we're committed to getting this information out and no one else is going to do it, we'll take on that role and responsibility and have a good time and fun doing it. Yeah. So the conservatory then grew. It ended up with uh, multiple species in the conservatory. We would do work parties. Volunteers started joining on, like cactus planting parties and things like that, where we would try to share the abundance of the conservatory with others and teach them, well, here's how you grow. Here's the, here's the myth around these plants. Here's the lore. Here's the science, et cetera, et cetera. So that way people could empower themselves around these medicinal plants and fungi. Which is interesting because there's a lot of people that are interested and more so than what you'd really think. I mean, people from all ages, uh, different backgrounds, uh, people that enjoy cannabis. Uh, a lot of people are out there enjoying these psychedelics and entheogens and, and plants that come from nature, but we're just now starting to talk about it. And a good example is that you put out these books. Right, well, so when we started um, with the conservatory, we, we then started to put on conferences. And to me, it really shows how the community is a desirable, um, desirable and a need. So like people come and they say, wow, I'm just really happy that there's a space that I feel comfortable coming and just sharing openly about my experiences, um, about my processes. And we started doing conferences and it, it just it brings people together and um, that may not have had the opportunity to get together in any other circumstance because how do you how do you find these communities? You know, you got we're, we're at the grassroots. We're building it. Um and so with the conferences, we, we work with education. At that point, we're educating the public. We're also allowing a space for people to come together as a community. And then we're also 
um, we would bring a plant, whatever plant we're focusing on for that conference, we would have the plant there. And it was the opportunity for people to start building a relationship with it with a sacred intentional setting. And, um, and we would have integrative practices that would include um, practices such as yoga, qigong, and meditation. And it's just bringing in a different perspective of how to um, respond, relate to these plants, right? So part of our name is ethnobotanical, which is the relationship between humans and plants. And so we're introducing different ways for people to have in, a relationship with those plants. And um, yeah. Like what you said, these are plants, this is nature. Why have we become so separated from them? I mean, whether it be laws or, uh, you know, uh, uh, politics or whatever, I understand that. But why is it that we've now as a society become so separated from the very thing we essentially came from? Yeah, I I personally believe it has to do um, in part with uh, for a long time we've been living this paradigm of a Christian um, model. And that Christianity in their first book of the Bible says, do not eat the fruit of wisdom. And so for me, I believe we have been being um, brainwashed for thousands of years. Would it be safe to say that it, most religions, I would say modern religions, have went that direction in terms of, again, I don't know the word, but making it wrong to uh, be a part of nature? Right. I, I would... I would say that's probably safe yeah. to say. I would say the emphasis for the religions has been on whatever God it is that they are worshiping. And nature, um, where we come from, gives a different perspective of what God may look like. And when you're trying to um, create a, a dogma or create a religion and then have people follow, you can't really have much free thinking and... And right. your own and your own um, sense of God sure. and connection with God and nature. The ironic part is that if you go way back, I think a lot of our religions came from psychedelics. Then we just got disconnected from it. Do you think that that was all on purpose? Sure. If you're if you're trying to be the powerful mm -hmm. and you're trying to have the followers then absolutely you you have to have that that input you have to have that approach to it yeah. you know and um you know and it shows like with the witches you know and how they were the, the christians went after the witches or it's just and and it's true in the indigenous and i mean even just coming over here to the states right the indigenous people here had many practices and relationships with plants and we called them barbarians i believe right and um, just another way to 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 be able to to call them a name and then say that the reason that they are barbarians is because of their plants and then they're no longer allowed to serve those or to practice with them. Yeah. I find it highly strange, though, to disconnect from the very place that we came from. Like we didn't come from buildings or roads or or any kind of political agenda. We came from the very place that we're trying or we have outlawed literally. Right. And we've forgotten. It's been so long. We've forgotten. But that brings us right up to what you guys are doing. So because of the politics and the agendas and stuff like that, now we've had to group together as people and bring these truths back out. 
what do you guys do specifically that is going to allow this to happen? I mean, you got education, you've got these books. I think the the literature piece uh, is so fundamental for a couple reasons. Uh, one is that it provides different glimpses into there's this whole streams of knowledge emerging, I think, from nature. And like what we do through words and literature is that we kind of, we try to distill down and we try to capture the essence and then transmit that essence out. Like here is how these cultures worked with these plants and fungi in this particular fashion. You know, that's one thing to archive it and to talk about. It's another to actually participate in it. So what we tried to do with the library is how can we always point people to information and knowledge streams that they're looking to tap into? So we consider it a decentralized, open access, open source, educational pathway, essentially. So people come in to us and they say, hey, well, I'm a scientist. We've had PhDs come in. I'm looking for neurochemical research on this particular plant or fungi. So we can point them to the science section and they're like, oh, okay, I'll find my way from here. We have people that come in and are interested in the religious traditions. Well, I've heard that there's, uh, you know, tribes in Africa that are working with the Ziboga. Do you have any research on that? So we'll point them to that direction of the library. My goal is always to just help match people up with their own internal interests because I think through intrinsic curiosity, if we can match people with that, with information, they take it from there. We had many people that came in, hardly knew anything about psychedelics, came to the library, found what they wanted, and then that was it. We didn't see them again. To me, that's a job well done. Sure. You don't want to create a dependent kind of relationship where people have to keep coming back to the quote-unquote expert. And I think that's part of why the internet has some limitations in terms of psychedelics. You know, the book, what was the book, 1984, where they used to burn the books? No, Fahrenheit, Fahrenheit 451. Yeah. So internet is great. Internet is fantastic. You can have a lot of data. You can, uh, you know, it's basically limitless. At the same time, there's an algorithmic function behind what you're seeing. And increasingly in today's world, that's getting monetized, that's getting corporatized, and there's a financial incentive to pull people's direction in a way that the advertisers and the money makers want it to go. And so in the beginning of the internet, it was very democratic, it was very open source. You could just look up whatever you wanted to, you weren't getting pulled or tugged or poked or prodded with an advertisement. Today's internet is very different. And for people, especially younger people being born in it, all their information is coming through that programming, essentially. It's another kind of institution in its own way. Sure. So when we first started the library, people were like, oh, books, like, why are you gonna do something with this? this is old, dusty, like, go donate them to Goodwill. Now, 2020, people are getting Cambridge Analytica. They're getting the algorithms. They're getting that, oh, they're capitalizing on us staring at these screens all day. And that community aspect of just ourselves, our networks, and even just personally, loneliness is like at its highest rates we've ever had in our culture at this point, even though we feel we're so much more connected. Yeah. So through these books, and I used to call it like, you know, in the spiritual, religious kind of, you know, these are like sacrificial trees, you know, we've cut them down and we've turned them into, and we've taken our best thoughts and highest intentions and aspirations and put them to words. And so the library, to me, and then we did, combine that with a digital side too. So there's two parts, there's the physical library for research and then the website basically turned into how do we create an archival document that shows how we emerge out of prohibition, 
how we restore and reconnect with nature, and how can we show how this is actually a worldwide movement that's happening, that that impulse, that need is there. We're facing all kinds of environmental crises, and there is an impulse. People are curious about these plants and fungi, particularly the psychoactive ones. So can we basically tell the story of us reconnecting with them? And when we started that process in 2014, you know, there was like 10 or 15 people talking about it online. At this point, it's hundreds, if not thousands, if not more. So our archives basically show not only that it's happening, but it also then identifies the people that may be coming into this space that don't have the best intentions. And two or three years ago, we thought everybody was in it for the highest intentions sure. and the good. We always like to think that. <laughs> right. Yeah. So what we learned is especially in the past couple of years, wow, there's a whole wave of interest and it does not always come from the earth is our connection. We're fundamentally uh, connected there. And we want to ensure that there's abundance and access for everyone. You know, there's other models that are looking at this in a very different way. They're not interested in you cultivating your own plants or your own fungi. They're interested in marketplace economics. They're interested in how do we turn psychoactivity into essentially an extractive yeah so there so we we basically so, non-specific amplifier is the best term for psychoactive plants and fungi i think in a way and that it's the intention and it's the set and the setting that are so fundamentally crucial to that and so we have basically worked towards if we can secure that fundamental relationship first and foremost People can then freely educate themselves on what they want to, they can cultivate on what they want to, and then they can integrate how they want to. It's a very cognitive liberty focused approach. What's going to result this year, you think, in the legislation? Do you think that we will come out with some sort of change in laws? Uh, 2020 seems to be a big year for us because we've got decriminalized nature, we've got you guys, we've got several uh, options on the board. I feel pretty confident in the people of Oregon. Um, you know, I think that... Uh, Didn't San Jose just pass? Santa Cruz. Santa Cruz, my yeah. bad. Okay, yeah, so Cruz, we got Santa Cruz, we got Oakland. Yeah, and, and Denver. Denver. Denver was with we're, the fungi we're over. heavily on the map. Um, we are, and you know, a lot of, a lot of people like back in the 60s um, have come from Oregon and, and just cannabis, we decriminalized in the 70s and I mean, whether it's bold or, or not, you know, I've heard that Oregon has some of the best weed, you know, some of the best cannabis, you know. And, and so for me, I think that Oregon has been a state that has been in touch with nature for a long time. And so and the community and the people I talk to, it's it's a warm welcome. Um, it's a warm welcome in policy change. And so I feel, I feel pretty confident that there will be some changes yeah. made this year. Yeah. Yeah. Can we get down to some personal stuff? Yeah. Um, do you guys uh, consume psychedelics? Well, my personal background was I knew that from my research, I did a lot of research before I ever got involved with the plants and fungi directly. Uh, I guess maybe just being wanting to be well-educated before taking the plunge, so to speak. So back in my younger years, uh, my quote-unquote teacher or, you know, my inspiration was 
how can I be self-sufficient? How can I be self-sustaining in this area? So when I finally got to the point that I felt I had enough, you know, knowledge around it, uh, I thought it was important to get involved with the cultivation. And to me, putting the care, time, attention, and love into what it is that you're growing is so fundamental to, that is the set in the setting. It's a deeper level of set and setting. So my uh, earliest experiences were basically self-growing and then kind of taking that like deep shamanic journey into oneself. And I knew I had a lot of healing. I had a lot of trauma to deal with. Do you and, work through that? Did you have to work through that? Oh, certainly. Yeah. And, and that's and that's an ongoing process See, too. My concern with that is that uh, for most people getting into these psychedelics, I think that most people end up having to work through a few things mm -hmm. first before the journey really begins. Mm -hmm. um, as a society, we're so you know, on the flip side of nature that I think getting back to it is kind of a, its own journey or its own work, if you mm -hmm. will. You were saying that you went through that. Did you come out the other side better? Yes, he did. Oh. <laughs> 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 he had to think about it for a second. I was waiting. You know, you heal from your past and then you have your present that you're sitting in. Sure. And when you've healed that, you know, immediate stuff that you know was on your shoulders that was weighing you down, that was baggage, you know, there's relief and that emerges from that space. But then there's also the future, yeah. you know? So it's how do we take that insight? How do we take that moment of healing and then bring that Apply forth? Yeah. And life then comes back at you. You know, things happen, we fall back into habits, patterns, and new stuff is happening all the time. I mean, the world itself is a chaotic and moving and uh, shifting place, especially in the past few years, there's a lot happening around. So. To me, when I think about like people say, well, are you healed now? And I'm like, well, healing, we're always healing. It's a lifelong journey and there's different stages and there's big moments and then there's small moments and then there's our everyday. And yeah. all of these things are always happening at the same time on some level. So to me, I think of it more as like a healing journey, I guess I would say. Absolutely. Um, and I think what I was referring to is mostly healing in terms of coming back to nature. So now I can go on the journey, my real journey, because I'm back where I was really supposed to be in the mm. first place. So when I say healing, I, I think mostly it's healing to the sense of actually coming back home and then starting the journey. That is, a, that's very well put. I completely yeah. agree with that. Uh, uh, yeah, because that piece of, and that's part of like how now we're involved with policy and legislation, you realize not only is this so fundamental what it is to be a human, to have a direct relationship with nature, but not only, you know, we have this idea that there's, uh, you know, a war on drugs, and, and there is, and yet there's so much permissiveness around it as well. Like, you know, cannabis is legal in multiple states. So there's this veneer of, oh, it's totally accepted and it's normal and it's just growing and growing and growing. That's not really the case with the psychedelics necessarily. And the deeper that we've peeled back the layers of the onion, so to speak, we reach the conclusion that there's a concerted war against it. It may not manifest in the physical form, but there's an informational war against it. And there's a concerted educational war against it. Even to this day, that's still going on. So I think now what maybe once you get past the personal, the autobiographical healing piece, to the extent that you can be a healthy functioning person in the world, uh, then it becomes about societal healing. And 
that's a lot of work. That's a yeah. different space to be in. It really is. And it's also, a. Mm-hmm. well, I don't know if you guys have done much research in, in tribes in the past, but you know, the Sami tribe, the Sami tribe, they came out of uh, the North European, Northwestern European countries. Mm-hmm. So like Sweden, Norway, before the Vikings and the Germans came through, the Samis lived there and they, that was part of their culture. I mean, uh, Amanita muscaria was mm-hmm. so prevalent. I mean, it was given as gifts and it was given to kids and adults and uh, people use this medicine and shaman. I mean, it was like an everyday thing. But so it's it was incorporated in deeply in tribes um, in the past. Yeah, and, and even Amanita, you know, it's a, however you want to phrase it, you know, scientists would say it's a great psychedelic medicine. Uh, somebody that's more spiritually oriented might say it's a... Uh, entheogenic sacrament par excellence a historian will say it's a vital part of the the food and the met and the culture of healing for the community uh so when i think about the way you're describing it that's the essence in so many ways if the community has abundance within itself it doesn't need or want from outside right and that's the kind of models that right now at least institutionally we don't have those set up for the psychedelic space and what we're seeing uh is a lot of corporate interest and or pharmaceutical interest in taking those plants and medicines and applying them, pulling them into their frameworks, and then distributing them out. Okay, so Salvia. Now you said chewing. Now I've never heard of chewing. Do you get the uh, visuals from chewing? No. No. Mm-mm. Do you get like a body high? Can you describe what that is? Oh, right, yeah. Well, for me, the present moment, um, a lot of it is is about a somatic feeling and um, and being in my body. So we're here on this planet in a physical form. And so one way to really be in touch with the present moment is to actually really feel embodied. And, um, and so, yeah, I would say that salvia for me is chewing the leaves. And I, um, my experience was chewing the leaves and not swallowing the um the saliva that comes for about a half an hour i've heard i think there's other ways to do it and so you know you can look that up um but yeah and then that present moment just i was for about an hour and a half like i really felt like i was a part of my setting like i was i was actually here um there was no distractions did you but no hallucinogenic properties. Mm-hmm. Just no, no, not like okay, not like salvia, smoking but, it. Not like smoking salvia, right? Because that. Where like sometimes is... I I've gotten up and like before when I've smoked it, like I've gotten up and actually physically moved and had no idea I actually got up and physically moved. And so and to me that was, I was I was seeing visions. I was someplace else, like seeing these visions and seeing. And then what I meant by getting like ripped back into the present moment is like okay, I'm experiencing something something. That's very different from my normal experience. And so I'm already awakened at that point. Like this is something very new. And then though, coming back into my body and like being present in the room, it was such a big shift because it happens in such a short period of time that it like felt like I was like ripping into the present moment. And then there's that afterglow for sure, where I felt like I, I was again connected and resonating with my surrounding. Um, but as with the the chewing there wasn't there wasn't this huge thing that brought me that awakened me and then brought me into the present moment it was like i just gradually became more self-aware of like 
my physical being and my place here in the moment. Now, salvia is a lot like DMT in that sense mm -hmm. that you kind of, well, you can rip into that little bubble yeah. where you don't see anything but what you're in uh, and then come right back out of it. Mm -hmm. So I think they're similar in that way. Um, <clears throat> have you had an experience on DMT like that? I haven't. No, I've only microdosed with it. Oh, okay. Yeah. And who was the gentleman in the 90s that studied DMT, the spirit molecule? Oh, Rick Strassman. Yeah, Strassman. Mm -hmm. They learned a lot, and that was all IV, too. Mm -hmm. So, right. I mean, these guys were actually really, like, with the mechanical elves, so to speak. So, it's so I think it's a really interesting uh, piece of the narrative of what the psychedelic renaissance as people are calling it is rick strassman was the first person to get fda permission to study psychedelics right. in 1995 and he himself has since come out saying we should make sure that this doesn't remain strictly a biomedical kind of approach to these plants and fungi and he also uh, said you know one of the goals of the communities as a whole should be to create community centers where science, education, propagation, conservation is all happening under one roof. And legislatively, that's really, really hard to pull together. For example, U of O is doing psychedelic research studies, but that's happening on campus. Uh, we are hosting this psychedelic library, but the university doesn't want a psychedelic library there. For the general public so there's these gatekeeping situations that emerge because we have this legislative policy and rick strassman given that he's the first of anybody to do these fda studies in the modern day uh is explicitly saying don't let it get too far into the medical hands and keep it local keep it community-based and keep that abundance that's a powerful statement and yeah it is where these algorithms are trying to direct people and pull people uh, that's what's going to happen, you know, their programming. Uh, how we engage with psychedelics in that space. You know, this goes all the way back to Dale Pendle's work in the Pharmaca Trilogy. And he said, you know, in the original 60s vision, there was like two apparent paths. And one path was you take LSD and then we're going to envision our way to techni technically develop sophisticated rocketry to go to other planets and we're going to colonize and we're going to grow. We're going to take this hyper growth GDP forever model out to the stars and beyond because we're that awesome. Like we are these divine creatures. We've woken up with the help of psychedelics and now we have this great intelligence and we're tool builders and we'll be doing it all throughout history and we're going, we're going, we're going. Well, and, the, and it's a question, is there an ultimate goal? And I think the other branch of that was, well, no, it's about going back to the earth. It's about giving back. It's about restoring. It's about fixing our soils. It's about cleaning our waters. It's this piece of assuming uh, and acknowledging the fact that it's a closed loop in a way. The earth itself is this living being. And to be on it and to take care of it and to be part of that abundance, which is like go back to earth. So in the 60s, there was this kind of two intellectual thought streams that kind of burst out. And one was let's race ahead to the future. And the other was let's slow down and look at our traditions and our roots and make sure the roots are good. I don't think there's a fundamental conflict between those two places. And part of our inspiration for doing the nonprofit was this realization that psychedelics are already out in the community. They've been here in the world since we started. Can we create a framework so we make sure nobody's left behind? 
And that's essentially kind of a Buddhist idea. You know, you're going to hold up on pursuing your ultimate personal highest goal to make sure that others have that same opportunity. So it's, I think psychedelics have great future potential uh, in technology, and I think they also have great future potential in permaculture and sustainability and all these notions of giving back to the earth. How are we going to integrate into this now with these movements and the initiatives decriminalize nature? Right. Well, so... So with that with that model you guys were just talking about and that there's this pharmaceutical pharmaceutical company and kind of this like elite, they are actually just a smaller portion of the society. And I don't believe that our society is fixed and that's the direction we have to go. Because to me, when it comes back to psychedelics, what I have found time and time again through so many different um interactions that I've had is that they are, they're a community building, they're a networking, just like its root system, it's networking. And so as more people are coming together, I think that it's not going to be people who are being left behind. I think it's that people are going to start coming together, and we're going to actually start seeing a new system being created. And that the working together, um, I think it's gonna. It's just gonna balance out more. There's going to be more attention towards, um, towards health and well-being, and um, and healing through people having their own experiences just on their own, or people coming together just in groups and having experiences. And I think that. As I have had conversations with people, people are trusting the plants more and more for their health and well-being. And, and clearly, because now all of a sudden the pharmaceutical companies are starting to see that there is, there is a benefit to them. And, but we don't need that model. That's, that's their problem. We don't need their model to be able to actually hmm. have these benefits and, um, and go towards a better way of living because the plants are those facilitators. Um, and, and we can help each other out. We can be facilitators too. Um, but there's not an emphasis on that model. So to me, there's not, yeah, it's, it's going to start balancing out. People are going to, the, the group, the whole is going to start having more of a, there's just going to be more awareness and more validation mm -hmm. with that. And I think there's going to be a balancing well, even if here's the deal, and we talked about this earlier, even if uh, pharmaceutical gets involved, which they will, we all know this yes. pharmaceutical is going to get they involved. Are. FDA is going to get involved. These are all the things cannabis is going through. Mushrooms and psychedelics will go through. And so with with the with the uh, pharmaceutical, I just think that it's just too, too sterile. Mm -hmm. So having the local communities, having these local businesses, having these areas where people can go centers like you were talking about. Right where people can experience all this stuff on a local level is much better. Um, right. I just don't Hands think on. cannabis, I don't think cannabis in a pill form, I don't think right. psychedelics in a pill form. Right, and to ensure that, you know, to, to ensure that access, you know, there are mm -hmm. um, initiatives now that are coming forward in support of that. So for instance, decriminalizing nature. Um, that is, their like three word tag is grow, gather, gift. I mean, that is, it grows, you can gather it and you can gift it. Um, and you can give it to yourself too. Um, and so I think that that is how, that is how we should start. We should start there, mm -hmm. in my opinion, when we work with policy. Um, that, 
that everyone can have access to it so we don't fall into that unfortunate scenario you just gave where it's just synthetic right know? and what's what's crazy is that in cannabis world even though we're still we're rec legal in oregon and we've got all these businesses and industry we still are like that so for instance come come october november you know this man you know if you're in oregon everybody's got cannabis so we are at least in oregon i know at least in southern oregon i know that we are geared towards that and i think we mm -hmm. can do that with mushrooms as well I think that's so important. Or psychedelics. One of the, yes. Yeah. One of the uh, words we kind of like work with that is the concept of mono farming, you know, and I'm not going to say that in agricultural that that is good or bad. I'm not going to make a judgment call on it. But when it comes to pharmacology, this notion we tamed uh, M-O-N-O-P-H arming. So mono farming. Right. And basically trying to use a Band-Aid solution, like a one size fits all. You know, like, oh, you're depressed, so we'll give you this one single molecule, and then we'll readjust your depression level to a place that it's technically not depression anymore, and then you go along your way. And, like, when you get into this one-pill-fits-all mentality, it's another kind of mono-farming. It's just rows and rows of crops that look exactly the same, that have to get the same kind of fertilizer applied. There's the same level of soil depletion into the... Uh, happening. There's no regenerative process that's happening back. And I'm concerned about psychedelics coming out in that mono farm kind of fashion when the fda says it will cure depression well talk to the people that did the research at johns hopkins talk to kathleen mclean who basically said look that's a dead end you you tell people that this will fix your depression and then the society itself is on this runaway course to ecological catastrophe mm -hmm. aka cbd right, right. i mean right. essentially right. same thing yeah. because yep. same right. thing right. cbd cures everything Right. All of a sudden, every damn person with a dog has CBD it's, right. and none of it works. Right. So. And and talking about CBD, it's actually it's a good segue. So something that is also um, recently becoming recently has become into a field of talk um, is taking away the psychoactive effects of a substance. Mm. And so and that's interesting because with CBD, that's what's happened, right? We've taken away the psychoactive effect. And, I, and I'm actually not going to say that I don't think there's health benefits to CBD because, um, you know, I think there are. Um, and at the same time, then it seems like it's putting a Band-Aid over it or something. It's only treating mm. one symptom or it's only treating one piece, right? Um, and for whatever piece the CBD is feed, like, you know, benefiting. But then if you work with the whole plant, Maybe you won't need the CBD. Maybe you'll, you know, take a bigger, like your whole bean, because you have the whole plant, yeah. will shift into, you know, wellness. Right. And in the meantime, mm -hmm. because we, we do live in this planet and there is already actually a problem, the mycelium are, they're, they're great. You know, they actually restore the dirt. Mm -hmm. And so perhaps, I'm not making any claims whatsoever, but perhaps, you know, when we take these plants, it's also restoring us um for you know for what we have gone through mm -hmm. you know the the what is it the poisons that we the you know the toxins that we yeah sure right and generationally well and that's the amazing thing about these kind of plants is that they are offering multiple yeah. avenues right. of health right. whether it be right. 
medicinal mm-hmm. or or like that uh psychological psychological mm-hmm. uh physical. taking physical taking taking bad stuff from the dirt for, to be able to use hemp to be able to yeah. reclaim soil and they're, and they're willing to humble themselves to go i mean they grow in shit literally that's no, sorry i shouldn't have said literally but like, literally they do they right. literally grow in a, a shitty situation yeah. mm-hmm. to make right. it better mm-hmm. being psychoactive uh, for the most part in the modern world makes it a bad thing. Oh, you get high, so mm. it's a bad thing. But I really like that you pointed out that psychoactive could be medicinal, mm-hmm. meaning that there could be medicinal properties to actually being high. Mm-hmm. There could be psychological advantages. There could be mental, depressive, uh, PTSD for veterans. Thinking about it through that metaphor, it's interesting, like, you know, the amount of force that we put in to, to our, you know, this country's military to defend, you know, in some ways, I think we're so aggressive to be, you know, at least the, the quote unquote leadership is to be out there defending because we've kind of created this uh, institution that is itself a little like it has benefits to it. You know, there's abundance appear of it. And but there's also like institutional trauma that's happening. There's mm-hmm. also just this environmental degradation, like we're subjected to so much negative as well Mm -hmm. and uh you know well i think i think it's veterans are like the red flag like look you're sending people out there to defend this thing and why are you having to defend it so hard it's an extreme example like Mm -hmm. why Mm -hmm. like you're throwing bodies out there basically and to say like you know protect this thing and yet back here we, we have people that are hungry you know, they don't have food. We don't have good access to medicinal plants across. You or know, it's healthcare. like what's we got what's, mental issues. Go, what's going on here? Yeah, and well, why, and, why and, are we turning the attention back to our people? I think bottom line is the fact is we're going to have to realize that psychoactive is medicinal and it is useful in situations for healing. And I think getting away from religion is a big part of it. Unfortunately, getting away from organized religion and understanding that. Uh, that these ideas are not bad, they're not sinful. What I find happening is that as you guys talk about this military, you know, industrial complex that we're living in and and those areas, and you had mentioned that we have decided that we can manipulate and control Mother Earth. And I think that it's inevitable that as more people are working with these plants, I mean, we do come from... Mother Nature. We know that because we actually have all the receptors to receive all of these plants in our bodies. Mm -hmm. So as we continue to connect with that, so we've gone so long. We've just gone so long. And yes, you know, religion has had a big part in it. There's, it's not the only one, but it has had a big part in it. And, and as we come back to using these plants, it's inevitable we'll become more connected with nature. We are literally connecting back into that part of ourselves, which we have um, forgotten, which we have been told we're not allowed to have. That's what I see to decriminalize nature and see this grassroots movement and see Oregon, quite honestly, who um, has had a very rich psychedelic history. All right, so Adelic, where you guys came from? Now, you guys started off with the library. Okay, that's kind of your your roots there. And then you guys kind of moved into the Ethnobotanical Conservatory. We talked about that. Now, today, you were talking about how there's events going on. We've got the, uh, you guys are writing legislation. You guys are uh, being involved with like the Decream Nature. Uh, you've got conferences. You've got, the, it says the research program here. 
Yeah, so one of the uh, studies that we just recently shared with the community was that we thought it was really imperative to get some scientific research demonstrating the efficacy of whole botanicals and whole fungi because at the institutional level, particularly FDA, like we talked about earlier, they don't study whole botanicals even to this day. You know, THC is an approved, quote-unquote, patented even, quote-unquote, given to Einstein's Pharmaceuticals, who is an opioid uh, company that's now president of is in jail for the next 66 months. They granted them exclusive access to THC license. So it's like at that level, they're just playing money games and right. they're playing uh, isolate games. At this level, what we're talking about is entourage, ensemble, however you want to mention right. it. I think that's really important. So anyway, back to the research, we were able to partner up with a local indigenous church here in Oregon that has access. So what we were able to do was prove scientifically using EEG and other research methodology that look, whole botanical fungals, fungi, mushrooms, work just as well as synthetic psilocybin. And I think that was a breakthrough, and that's a uniquely Oregon thing because there's no other state in the country that has this legislative patchwork of legal permissions to be able to conduct that study. And that desire as a team emerged from uh, one of our meetings we had about a year and a half ago. We said, look, there's huge money coming into this space. We're talking about multi, multi, multi-millionaires, if not billionaires. If we don't prove early on that these mushrooms work just as well, we're going to miss something important there. There's a thing that we've forgotten in this country, uh, but it was mentioned, and you know, people will bristle at the name because they're trying to brand this psychedelic renaissance as this you know hyper medicalized thing that it's all it's all government approved. And but Tim Leary made very clear when he was arrested for his work, they planted a joint on him back in uh, 1960, whatever it was. And when he put out his statement from prison, he said, "Look, I'm an American. I have a right to." privacy, I have a right to religion, and I have a right to science. And like, nobody talks that way anymore. I have a right, right. to science. Like, no, 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 that's the scientists. That's what they do. You have a right to science. So our goal at the nonprofit is as we cultivate, protect, and conserve these plants that we listen to the community. What do we want to discover about the plants that we are growing? And we can conduct those research. We don't need to uh, get permissions from this high level on authority. Like, we have, have the framework here to conduct our own research. So if we're curious to discover how is it that psilocybin mushrooms work, well, we can conduct research, we can get results, and we can discover that unlike a synthetic, it appears that psilocybin mushrooms act as superior adaptogenics, and that is they will bring the body to a state of equilibrium and balance but it will do it different ways. So example, you give the same dose of a mushroom to somebody that is having a down mood. You can watch an EEG machine. You can see the brain scans. You can actually witness what's taking place and you can reach the conclusion, oh, it boosted exactly what levels were needed to bring that person to a better state of being. Yeah. You give it so to somebody, self-dosing. <clears throat> right, and you give it to somebody who may have uh, speedier tendencies or be hyper ADHD. ADHD kind of like focused, and for that person, it has an adaptogenic effect, which means it adapts itself to that person's circumstances and then brings that into a homeostasis. If yeah. we have cannabis and we have mushrooms or psychedelics, yeah, 
I'm not sure if we can grow because we can grow all this stuff in our backyard, right? I don't think we need much else, right? We got the mental, you know, component, medicine, mm-hmm. our nervous system, essentially. Mm-hmm. And then we got our physical taken care of with the cannabis, mm-hmm. whether it be physical aches and pains. We got an anti-inflammatory. We got some a little bit of psychological help, but but mostly we get that from mushrooms, right? Does that make mm-hmm. sense? I'd put Kratom in there and... I like croutons too. No, croutons. <laughs> kratom. 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 Oh, is that how they say that? That's how I heard okay. it's like, yeah, spoken as. Kratom. Kratom. Do you, have you had experience with that? Yes, I have. Why don't you talk about that real quick? Um, well, for me, I take it like in a much smaller dose. Um, and so sometimes the notion is less is more. And I would say that in regards to Kratom starting out less is more because it actually has this ability, which is a really beautiful ability because um, it has a bottom floor. So if you take too much, then really your system will say like, ew, this is disgusting and just throw it back up. Um, Whereas, you know, other substances. So, so first I want to distinguish that it's, it's been put out there a few times that perhaps it's part of the opiate family and it's not, it's part of the coffee family. And um, it does not behave exactly like an opiate, but it does have the ability to allow um, for some pain relief. Um, It's a mild stimulant, comes from the coffee family. Um, And so that, for me, Kratom has, it's it's helped um, soften um, any sort of like pain I might be feeling. Um, It gives me the energy sometimes. I might say like I'm staying up late for studying for an interview on a podcast. I'm just checking. Um, <laughs> but no, it'll, it'll help me stay up a little later, you know, and, and unlike coffee, I don't feel strung out afterwards. I don't feel this almost with coffee. The, the caffeine is, is so powerful that like sometimes I can even get jittery. Um, and that on, for me on a smaller dose doesn't happen with Kratom. It's like, it's a lot of people say that they can get off pain meds using that. I believe it. Uh, is that because of its, you know, pain numbing properties effects. or is it because right. it's acting in For other effects. ways? Like, is there some mechanism that it's acting to block the pain or is it just literally? I don't know if there's been much research around it. Yeah. Kratom was very controversial. We uh, Now the government still is a little bit iffy with it, right? They're still like uh, Right. Well, right. so there's basically three primary sites that the general opioids target. Uh, so, you know, anything from heroin to prescribed oxycodone to you know the whole range of legally available opioids target these three specific receptor sites in the brain. Kratom only targets one of those sites. I'm sorry, it targets two of those sites. The third one, it doesn't. The th- site that it doesn't target is the primary site of what causes all the opioid deaths that we're seeing primarily. It's the slowed respiration of breathing. Right. So people <clears throat> take so many opioids that their breathing eventually slows down. They die, basically. Uh, Which lead, is that lead, bottom floor. Leadum cause of opioid You'll throw death. up if you take too much Kratom. It, it won't allow you to do that. So Kratom, right, it doesn't, one, uh, physiologically, your gut will reject it if you take too high of an amount for your body. Two, it doesn't impact that pathway that slows down breathing. So 
all the reports up to this point that have been released around Kratom saying, oh, it's super dangerous, it's killing people, we have like 90 confirmed deaths. If you actually go back and read the research, which we've done, we put it in our archives, just because we see it's going to be an ongoing debate as we move forward with botanical medicine generally in this country. But if you look at the research, there is uh, there's no evidence that it's ever killed anybody. The closest you can come to that is saying, well, it looks like they were took Kratom, and then they also had been drinking a fifth that night, and they also took some tramadol, and you know, it's this polydrugging scenario. And, and then they, so the government looking at it saying, well, this is really replacing a lot of what folks are using in you know mainstream opioids. It's helping people get off, and it's a safer way, and it kind of gives that light euphoria, and it gives pain relief, and it doesn't slow down breathing, and its addictive forming potential is like substantially less because it doesn't have this slothiness effect, so you can still get up and go to work, you can be active, you can be functioning and productive and not have pain. I'm Higher Peaks. If you like this episode, please like, share, comment, and go to organrooted.com where you can subscribe to us on your favorite platform like iTunes, Pandora, or Spotify. Also check us out on our YouTube for videos and IG, Facebook, and Twitter for all our updates. Thank you for listening. Okay, so along with the research program, you guys also offer, we've talked about this already, but you have a website, you have some archives that people can refer to. You also have a newsletter, uh, newsletter that you put out. So how do we get this information? So uh, yeah, you can reach us at our website. It is edelic.org, or you can just Google edelic, E-D-E-L-I-C. And uh, on the website, you can find links to Facebook, you can find links to Twitter, we have an Instagram account as well. And then on the website, we also lay out the ethics of what it is that we're doing and why we're trying to create this kind of natural local abundance and encourage that kind of community growth. We can also meet our team on the website. Uh, we also go through the plants that we work on preserving, conserving, uh, and ensuring have a future and longevity here in Oregon. And there's also an educational component. I think there's about 2,000 articles that have been curated and archived onto the website as well. So what we're trying to do is preserve an artifact of here is how psychoactive fungi and plants have reemerged into culture at this particular point in time. So if you look through there, you can find a lot of scientific research. You can find a lot about the different cultural uses of these plants and fungi. You can find a lot about the politics. And through that and networking through social media, you can actually get involved in having a participatory role in shaping the future of this because this is small, it is emerging. And I think the more that we can keep it local and community-based, the more that our natural expertise and our natural knowledge and our community-based knowledge can come to the forefront and have that be, uh, you know, we, we don't always need experts. And in fact, a lot of times experts are so hyper-specialized that they're missing the bigger picture. So I think we do it all together. Mm -hmm. And uh, we also are willing to archive information that people send to us as well. So it's somewhat of an open source. It is. It now, is. the newsletter too, you just go on the website and uh, sign up, yep. uh, email. Uh, now, as far as the future, uh, you guys are going to be doing a lot. You guys are looking towards safe access is what you had mentioned. You had also talked about maybe a treatment facility, which is part of the safe access. I really want to dive into that real quick. You guys also have, um, like you guys talking about a provider network where you guys have access to people in completely different fields mm -hmm. in this um, specialty. And then Rachel also to education. We need to talk about that. That is huge. I think education is always key to all these 
movements, initiatives, all this stuff, open conversation, education. So let's talk about the safe access. What does that mean to you guys? And my only challenge to that is, is that really uh, something that everybody can enjoy? Because well, Anyone? I see. Okay. Well, I see safe access um, being that you know where your source, what your source is, where it came from. Um, and when you keep it um, at grassroots, when you keep it local, you generally know your grower or your grower could be yourself. I mean, you can't get more safe than that unless no. you don't know what you're doing. But there are books to be able to be educated on that. Well, and, um, and just make note on a side note with cannabis and mushrooms and fungi mm -hmm. and stuff, it's biorheumatic. So it will right. like you don't want to grow in dirty soil. Yeah. With yeah. that said. So well said. Yeah. Right. Go ahead. Right. So. Um, so, yeah, I think that to me that that adheres to both the new and the old that are involved, like the newcomers and the, the ones that have been in it for a long time. It's, um, and, and because also then what does that do for those that have been in it in a long time? Well, it's all of a sudden if it's decriminalized, well then, you know, from there, those people can start coming out of the, the wood chips, <laughs> um, or the soil <laughs> and like, you know, for you mushroom growers, for you mushroom growers. <laughs> um, yeah, I and mean, when those people get to come forward, they've got a lot of knowledge, a lot of information. Uh, you know, through the conferences, we did a we did do a CBD awareness event, and we had our local growers come, our local mm -hmm. extractors come, and just share with the community. These are these are people here locally. You can go and you can talk to them. You know, there's a face to the person who's growing your you know your medicinals, your herbals, your remedies. Um, so to me, that's what safe access means. Okay, mm -hmm. so not only just access to it but in a safe way um locally really right mm -hmm. um does that also uh encompass safe access as in the right to uh study uh, acquire and use without uh being prosecuted yes certainly. That, yeah. absolutely sure. and and, okay. and decriminalized absolutely. nature takes that a step further it's it's not just prosecution it's even investigation Right. Like you shouldn't even be able to be looked into mm -hmm. just because you're doing something on your uh, own. Yeah. And I behind closed doors. Is means there something closed that, doors, mm -hmm. and correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't there something about like being able to actually sell it to a certain degree? I think that there's a couple different frameworks that are emerging. Okay. And don't quote me on anything. I just was, I think there's something about how much you could actually sell or give or something or. Yeah. So on our website, we, we're doing a lot of policy, looking at different policies right now. So you can look up the, the specific logistics, but there's policy initiatives proposed in the state of California. There's city initiatives that all look a little bit different from each other. Uh, the essence of what Oakland was trying to start with is, can we create a safe, protective bubble for non-commodified growing, gathering, you know, our harvest, mm -hmm. and then giving? So if you can start with that fundamental principle that we can take care of ourselves, if we decide to, and decriminalized nature is looking at this, can you create economic models that ensure, unlike in cannabis, where like a hyper-capitalism has kind of come in and it, it's turned into an extractive endeavor, mm -hmm. can we, if we are going to even consider moving into the possibility of sales, have we really set up that grow, gift, mother, to grow, gift, and gather, grow, gather gift model to a point that it's sustainable enough that any economic growth that emerges off of that doesn't take from the people who started it in the first right. place. So basically we're trying to maintain a barter system at the lower level. Yeah. 
Safe access, I think, Safe. Is, is what we're talking and, about. And uh, yeah, barter system is a fantastic model. We've talked to some people at our, our, our weekly meetings, and it's interesting that you have to, at this point, we have enough uh, hindsight with cannabis legalization, and now we have enough foresight with the potential psychedelic legislation in one way, shape, or form to realize, oh, you have to really make sure that the community that grows together can stay together. Yeah. Right, like in Canada, they, their cannabis, you get it through the government now. And, you know, it, we've we've bared witness to what that cannabis looks like. It's, well, not, it's only, not, yeah. you know, it's, and so quite honestly, it's, there's a possibility if it hasn't happened already that the, the underground will just, you know, start to um, become more alive again because, yeah, yeah so... Keeping it local. <laughs> Keeping it local. <laughs> and fresh and healthy. And fresh and I healthy. think it, I, I would like to just pass the fact that you should be able to pick a damn mushroom that's growing right. in the ground without getting in trouble. That'd yeah. be right. a good first step. Yeah. I don't see how me taking it out of the ground becomes a crime. A federal crime. If I own cows and, and their byproduct is milk, I get to sell the milk. If their byproduct mm. is poop and shrooms, I should be able to do well, the same thing. With Why that am said, I limited? I, I paid for the cow. I can see why India, uh, you know, makes cows yeah. uh, very <laughs> sacred. sacred. Right. The holy cow. I'll tell yeah, you what. Exactly. Because here's the deal. Think about it. You know, you highland mushrooms, you get the Amanitas, tree of life and everything. And then you come back in the valleys and you got all these cows and stuff. And then these safer types of mushrooms, these psilocybins and all that stuff. Oh, yeah. Love the cows. Yeah. Don't eat those things. Eat the mushrooms. Eat the poo. Okay. And the trees. And yeah. the tree. And the, the trees. trees. That's they like thing. the trees. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so safe access. Now this also mentions a treatment facility. What's your feelings on that? When we talk about a, a treatment program, it, um, it doesn't actually look like a clinic. Okay. Um, I would say that the treatment program is an opportunity for those who are, um, either addicted or suffering from perhaps, um, some mild mental psyche, um, for instance, like anxiety, an opportunity to come and see a different path forward. So the current model for opiate um, addiction is methadone. And is it possible to, uh, you know, maybe take high high doses of RSO until you get past those three days of withdrawal? And then is it possible to take some Kratom to help curve the desire? Um, and then is it possible to microdose on mushrooms to start working with the psychological reasons why you're in that place in the first place? And then is it possible to, you know, in take cannabis, um, like CBD for pain, or like just, just a botanical model, a botanical pathway out of addiction versus the dependency on a chemical substance that may not actually ultimately in the end uh, rid the person from that addiction or at least allow them to have clarity through it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I agree with in terms of the structure. I think that that is an option. And I think that there's the more pathways that make individuals and help individuals feel comfortable and safe. Some people uh, would like that community aspect mm -hmm. to go to, a, you know, they don't necessarily want it in their home. Other people are fiercely uh, oriented towards home. You know, of course we want to be able to grow and cultivate in our homes. It's our home. It's our sanctuary. It's where we're at. So uh, legislatively, we're always looking for 
what is the kind of policy that ensures that access increases and that nobody's rights are infringed upon, and that will open it up to as many people that feel that they need it. Safely. Sure. Safely. And and I think safely. And lifestyles. Sure. Sure. There's a lot of things to consider. I think there's a lot of variables there. And I think this all, again, leads right back into this, Rachel, is education. I think we should teach kids not only about drugs, but about psychedelics, about drugs being medicines, and also about, my opinion, is emotional freaking teach. We have no one teaching our kids about emotional awareness or emotional intelligence. Uh, We teach them how to do math and read and all the mechanical things, but we don't teach them how to deal literally with life. How to be mad properly. Internally. How to be upset internally, hurting somebody. And I think that if we address that, I don't think that addictions and PTSD and other mental issues would be quite as dominant as they are because we'd have the tools, as people have said in our podcast before, you need those tools to deal with things. No one gives them to you. You either learn them on your own or you end up a victim of addiction or right. abuse or whatever it is. See, in, in an indigenous culture, there was rites of passage. This was fundamental yes. to all these cultures. And so what we've done by not having education within our school systems or having bad information, which is even worse in our school system, is we've created a scenario where youth minds are growing, developing. And then at some point, there is this transition that happens. There is a rite of passage. You come to realize, oh my gosh, all the adults around me or a large majority of them are working with some kind of psychoactive. And now we can say this fairly consistently, at least 90% of people, whether it's coffee, whether it's cannabis, whether it's alcohol, whether it's prescription, there's some kind of support that they're getting from the plant or the pharmaceutical areas to continue their life. And they come into that awareness and it's not like uh, it just suddenly makes sense. If we don't explain the whys, the hows, the how-tos safely, the when-tos safely, the set and setting, the whole educational piece. They just suddenly come into this world and like, wow, what am, what am I supposed to do in this space? We give zero education around this topic in our school systems at this point. And so a lot of us emerge from that space and suddenly, wow, there's an opioid world out there somewhere. There's a psychedelic world out there somewhere. There's a cannabis industry somewhere. There's this huge mm. ideas of spaces that we've been no education. Sheltered from. No, and the, lit, and the education that we, we deem education is don't do drugs. Well, I'd like to say no. And I do want you to elaborate. So yeah, I'd, I'd like to share into this. So I'm, I'm going to bring it back to just us being born and babies. And the reason mm-hmm. that we grow and we learn how to talk and we learn how to move is curiosity. So there is a curiosity that the baby is curious about its environment. It's absorbing its environment. And as we grow, we begin to have a conceptual mind, but we don't lose our curiosity. And so realistically, children, as they grow older into at a certain point when they do become aware of their parents' um, engagements and what, you know, and they start becoming more aware of their environment and what's in their environment, they have a curiosity about it. So we can realistically say that at a certain age, um, children, youth, will begin to have a curiosity about substances, just like they have a curiosity about sex. And, um, 
you know, we've we've gone through different models about sex education, and I think we maybe finally are coming to a point, I think we've come to a point where there's a little bit more honest sex education. I don't think we've come there when it's come to substance. And I, I, I like the word substance versus drug. Um, because it's to me, it's a little bit more encompassing of it all, and um, and so for substances, clearly, dare to keep kids off drugs didn't work. So I know that there have been new models coming out um, around substance awareness curriculums. That's what I call it. I don't know what they, what other people coin it, but that's what I call it as a substance mm-hmm. awareness curriculum, and. It's an honest conversation with youth. It's it's honesty um, and it's harm reduction and it's an opportunity to um, to really ensure that the youth can go out and when they come in contact with a substance, they can make an informed decision. And and that's what we want. And so I think and and I do think it clearly ties into rites of passage. I believe that as these children come to the time where they are curious about substances is probably right about the time that they're going through a rites of passage, probably somewhere around puberty. That's another rites of passage. So these all can be tied in. Um, And and I don't know necessarily, you know, right now we're just talking about educating our youth. We haven't even talked about allowing them to you know, really partake in this rites of passage with a plant, which I know has been demon- has been utilized in indigenous cultures for a long time. And I, I don't see a model. I don't have a model for that. Um, I think if we begin to educate not only our youth, but also our adults, that perhaps that is in our future. And so that we can help because part of going through our puberty is when, yeah, there's... There is a chemical change going on, and that is when, you know, we are maybe more vulnerable to, like, maybe being traumatized or making poor decisions or anxiety, you know. And if we have um, our, our adults and our plants supporting as we bring these youth into adulthood, then, you know, maybe we won't have as much dysfunction in the future. Okay, can I share something in here? Absolutely. Uh, so I, one of my my geekiest sides of doing the nonprofit is I've read most of the books in the library. So when we ever get into these topics, I may have like five books pop in my mind, like, oh my gosh, if people read like, so Terrence McKenna wrote an amazing book about exactly what we're talking about here. And I think it was a little misappropriately titled. It was in 1994. We weren't as awareness around gender and equality and all this hadn't emerged to the point it's called food of the gods yeah i think it should be mm-hmm. called food of the gods and goddesses at least sure if not more you know, right uh, but anyway they go into the actual history of each substance through an anthropological and historical lens and all the things we're describing here about how you know these historical trends land we inherit them mm-hmm. we're taught by our parents and our grandparents you know like these things come to us so you know, candies on the table is just part. It's the tail end of a huge backstory. I think that involves slavery, all kinds of things, all kind of things, so, and yet they're legal. When I think about legislation, and even legislation that's grounded in well, twenty-one and older, I'm like, dude, that's a legal contract between consenting adults. And it's great that we're making societal progress on legalization, but we're really dancing around a core issue here, and is that we don't have the right to teach our children about these Schedule One plants and fungi. 
institutionally anywhere in this country. You can't go into a school and start talking about, did you know that if you encounter psilocybin mushrooms when you get into high school, they have these pharmacological properties. Here is how, the, if you decided to consume them, you could or not. Here is a safety profile. Here's, here's who you, you can talk to. Well, and here's the problem is that is the very reason why I think we have such a high level of addiction problems right. and mm -hmm. substance abuse. Uh, going back to what you said about the, um, where you know you turn a certain age and and you do the whole what is it the rite of passage rite of passage mm -hmm. thank you I think that is a very important because of this the teenagers like you said don't know what's going on they got a flood of hormones they're all they know is they want to try shit and they want to rebel so if they can't do it they're gonna do it rite of passage almost is like giving that to them and saying you know what. You're at that age. We know what you're thinking. We know what you want to do. Mm -hmm. All right, let's do it. Mm -hmm. We're going to make you an adult today. Mm -hmm. But as parents, we're still the guides. And right. that's what they've taken away from they us. Are, they have. They've Absolutely. taken away from us the ability to be our children's guides. Sure, yeah. sure. I'm, I'm making this simplified. Right, right. But yeah, we are their guides and we're giving that to mm -hmm. them. And then they go through that and go, wow, okay. Mm -hmm. Now then I know they, then really they respect us more because we have all that knowledge that they were unaware of. Well, not only and respect we, us, but I think respect the drugs, respect nature, yeah. respect the whole process. And yeah. then they I have I think some, they understand themselves more. Yeah. And, and, and they, there's a dawning realization that they're part of it. Yeah. They're already an integrated part of the whole thing that's been right. taking place yeah. and unfolding all along. And then that person doesn't end up sitting on the couch all day, you know, smoking weed, playing right. video games. Right. Because they got caught in a trap of just rebelling into something. All right, well, let's wrap this up. Rachel, uh, why don't you talk about how people can support this huge movement that's not only happening here in Oregon, but across the states? How, how can they get involved? Well, so when you say it's happening across the states, it's true, especially here in Oregon. So uh, back in December, we held a Decriminalized Nature conference, and it was a statewide conference. And we had... Um, folks from Portland, Salem, Corvallis, Eugene, Springfield, Roseburg, Grants Pass, Medford, and Ashland come to the conference. And there were people interested in Bend, but they couldn't make it over the pass at that time. Um, and so there are people, this, this really is, you know, a, a growing movement. And I would encourage people, if you're interested in being involved in your city's policy, you know, and, and, and your community to reach out to platforms such as like psychedelic societies, um, to they're on Facebook, you can, um, you know, you can get in touch with us at Edelic, um, and we have people who have said, yes, please connect me uh, with with others in my city so that we can start coming together. So you're welcome to to email us. And I would encourage you to to also just start maybe feeling uh, the, the pulse to just openly talk about it with somebody, you know, um, and just begin the conversations. Um, because that's how you, you find those out there that are interested. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you guys coming on James, Rachel, you guys have shared so much and, uh, you know, I think we're all on board here. I think we're all in tune with this movement and I think it's a great one. Um, it's positive and we appreciate what you brought to the show. Thanks for being on guys. Yeah. Thank you for thank having you us. Thank you so much. All right. It's been wonderful.